Okay, so um, today's lecture is going to talk about policy, law, and society. Last week we went rapid fire through the biology, both embryology, cell biology, and introduction to what a stem cell uh, is and where they come from, both the so-called tissue-specific and the embryonic type. So you should have pretty much sorted out in your head the differences between the two and where they appear in human development. So today we're going to talk a little bit about how these two types of stem cells enter the public realm, including some of the controversy that surrounds embryonic stem cell research. And we'll go through not only the United States uh, situation, but I'm going to give you a tour of some of the world stage and how other countries approach embryonic stem cell research. And we'll do kind of a comparative analysis of, of the United States to uh, the, rest of the uh, rest of the world. So this is uh, something right out of the paper, I think, a couple of years ago. And I include it because it's kind of an interesting take on not only the controversy between adult or tissue-specific and embryonic, but cells themselves, you know, are divided. And it's kind of an interesting play on words that life begins in the Petri dish, cloning for research, and really those are the two uh, sides of the, of the debate, as it's called, that has been uh, raging for about 10 years now. So let's start with some history. And this is a pretty important thing to understand in the context of current policy on embryonic stem cell research. And the reason that I say that is that um, this isn't a new phenomenon for the United States. In fact, we've been battling a controversy since the early 1970s, and it really began with Roe v. Wade. Um, that, of course, is when you know that the Supreme Court uh, decided that a woman had a right to uh, an abortion. And during that, those first years uh, after Roe v. Wade, there was quite a lot of discussion in the American government, in Congress in particular, about the worries that we would have from embryos that might be um, somehow taken ex utero or out of out of the uterus and used for research. And so in 1974, Congress passed what they called a temporary moratorium on embryo research. Now not on embryonic stem cell research, but on embryo research, which basically said that no funds, no government funds, could be used to do research on human embryos. So it really began in 74. And in 1975, the Congress suggested that a National Ethics Advisory Board, which I'll call an EAB, be formed to come up with some guidelines about how to conduct this research. So this was a perfect case of uh, science um, outpacing at least some Americans' feelings that we were going faster than, say, ethics and policy could actually deliberate. And so this ethics advisory board deliberated over a course of months. And in 1975, it approved one 
in vitro fertilization research project with a 14-day rule. Now remember, at this time, these were the very early years of IVF, when we were learning, at least in the laboratory, how to um, create uh, what is now called a test tube baby. And the 14-day rule actually comes from the UK. And the UK, in their uh, guidelines, say that uh, embryos that are used in research shall not be kept past 14 days of age. At that point, they are to be destroyed. Now, it's a pretty conservative, say, window. At 14 days, the embryo is still in the very, very early stages. But this commission in the UK, called the Warnock Commission, used this 14-day rule uh, for its own uh, research in the UK. And not coincidentally, the EAB in 1975 adopted a similar sort of strategy. However, even though a nationally appointed ethics advisory board approved this project, the parent agency of the NIH, then called the DHHS, rejected the approval. So this is a recurring theme in American politics, where once part of the government says, you know, we've looked at this, we think it's okay, and then another part of the government says, we're not okay with it, you can't proceed. And it's this tension that goes back and forth over the course of up to three decades now. And it's really very much the same uh, in, in the 21st century. Well, while we were discussing this in the United States, having this debate in the United States, the UK was moving ahead with in vitro fertilization research, fertility research. And you'll all remember, or maybe some of you may not, I don't know, but in 1978, Louise Brown, the first test tube baby, was born. Um, and this was uh, a procedure that was perfected by a couple of English uh, doctors called uh, uh, Steptoe and Edwards. And it was a monumental event worldwide, especially in the United States, because this then erased the debate all over again. Now we're experimenting with the embryos, now we're creating life, and this got played out into the press, into the papers, and, and all the rest. Well, just a couple of years later, this National Ethics Advisory Board expired. It had no national charter. It had no funding. And so as a result, there was no oversight of fertility research or research that would actually uh, look at embryos and human development in the first few days of life. So this period of time um, uh, became very important for American fertility research. And in fact, during the 80s and the 90s, um, mo many of the questions that were asked of early life, for example, um, infertility, or how disease develops in the first few days, these developmental diseases, genetic diseases, those questions were swept out of the reach of most American clinicians and scientists. Now, in other countries, this research proceeded. But here, uh, at least in terms of government funding, um, there were no funds available for them. Now, in 1989, uh, the moratorium was extended. Congress revisited this over the period of the 80s, and they kept kind of bringing this up on the calendar and then issuing statements of saying we are still not going to fund this research. And in fact, uh, 
with varying administrations and varying success, Congress hasn't always been consistent on this. And in fact, in 1990, it reversed itself and tried to override the moratorium. And at this point, George Bush Sr. overrode this moratorium on embryo research with a veto of his own. It was, I think, not his first, but uh, uh, the first science veto, or the f a veto that had science policy at its heart. He went on to make other uh, interesting um, uh, policy decisions on fetal tissue research, if you'll remember that, back in the late 80s and 90s. Yes? Can you tell us something about Louise Brown, what kind of a life she had? She has. Uh, Louise Brown is, is, a, is a vibrant mother. She has her own child. I think she had twins um, recently in 2006. And she's in England, and there, of course, are many, many thousands of IVF babies now. Um, but Louise was the first. Now, bringing it forward into the 1990s, the Clinton years are really, really interesting because Bill Clinton, though we think of him as a friend, uh, perhaps, to, to uh, basic research, he had a fairly stormy relationship with this particular uh, question about embryo research. One of the first things he did when he got into office was he instructed Donna Shalala, uh, again, the, I think she was the head of the HHS, to lift the, the ban. Now, Shalala went after the, um, uh, uh, the task with um, great vigor, and within a, actually, I think a few months, the ban was actually lifted. So this was the sole instance that I know of, now there may be others, but the sole instance I know of in the last 33 years that this was temporarily lifted, which means that the NIH and the NSF and all the rest could actually fund this research. But it didn't take more than a few months uh, for a, a big letter writing campaign from conservatives, among them uh, religious leaders, to uh, caused Clinton to backtrack. And so he flipped rather quickly on this and then instituted, reinstituted uh, the, the ban. Shortly after that, that was kind of a signal that there was at least not the political will in the White House to keep the, keep the, uh, the, the ban lifted. And so Congress then took this moratorium and then passed a law called the Dickey Amendment in 1995. And it was a de facto ban. So they turned a moratorium into a ban. And this is now a rider, a yearly rider, that's attached onto the budget of the Health and Human Services Department every year. And every year it's passed. And every year it says the same thing. No funds shall be used to, for any research that requires the destruction of a human embryo more or less. So uh, not much happened for a few years, but before Clinton left, he remember he had these things that he wanted to do before he left office. I think he called them, I'm cleaning, I'm cleaning house or cleaning the kitchen, or I can't remember exactly what he said. But one of the things he wanted to do was try to uh, put this back on the agenda, because what happened just before 2000? James Thompson came along, right, 1998. So all of a sudden, we had embryonic stem cells appear on the scene, and a new 
force for embryo research came to the forefront of funding, a new need, rather. And so what Clinton uh, said in 2000 was that he was going to ask the NIH's lawyers to see if there was a way that the interpretation of embryonic stem cell research could be uh, sufficiently um, uh, defined to allow some funding for embryonic stem cells. And so what they came up with was the following kind of um, uh, compromise solution. And that was no government funds could be used to destroy an embryo. But government funds could be used on embryonic stem cells. So what does that mean? It means that the, the destruction of an embryo had to happen someplace else with some other funds besides in a government lab with government money. But once it happened, once the job was done, scientists could actually work on those cells with government money. Well, it didn't really wash very well with the hardliners because they saw right through the strategy and George Bush picked it up. This is George Bush, the current, um, picked it up in his campaign speeches early on saying that one of the first things he was going to do when he was into office was to take this embryonic stem cell question and fold it into the embryo funding ban. And so what he did was uh, 2001, August 9th, 5 p.m. <laughs> Eastern time. I know because I was, I was at a party at my house where we were going to, we had beer and champagne and we were going to see which way he went and we were going to drink one or the other. And I was at UCSF at the time running the research there and uh, I ended up with a lot of beer. I still have the bottle of champagne by the way, it's probably no good. But he said on August 9th from his ranch in Texas that, um, that, uh, that from that point forward, August 9th, 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, there would be no government funds allowed for embryonic stem cell research. His compromise was very similar to Bill Clinton's. And he said, but I've been thinking about this with my ethics advisors and my other political advisors, and it's okay for government funds to be used on embryos or embryonic stem cells made before that time. And in fact, I'll come up with a list and I'll tell all you guys what that list is and you can work on those because I think that those you know, will be good enough for what we need to do. And besides, the you know, embryos are gone in that case. We have the cells, we might as well use them. So it was, in, in, a, in a way, kind of an ethical balancing act that Bush did in his own way. And believe it or not, a lot of scientists, including many here at Stanford, uh, thought that this was going to be a pretty good, a pretty good uh, halfway. So what uh, Bush said is, I've got a list of 78 or so lines. And it turns out that the 78 lines were very hard to come by. No one knew who they had. He said the NIH had them. The NIH said that they didn't have them. They weren't sure where the White House got the number. And to make a long story short, I write about this in the book. Um, the lines uh, on the 
Bush Registry, as it's now called, or the NIH Registry, bore a suspicious resemblance to a group of lines that had been published by the New York Times by a bunch of reporters who had gone out throughout the world and found where they thought embryonic stem cell lines were. And so it's still a matter of debate about where exactly these lines came from, but the 78 lines was the, was the half measure that was put forward for embryonic stem cell research in the United States in 2001. Yes? Can you define the word line? Yes, I will. So uh, the question is, can I define a line? Uh, so we, we uh, talked a little bit last week about how you derive a line, how you make a line. So a line is made when you take the embryo and you take the uh, inner cell mass cells inside the embryo and you put them in a dish and you add uh, certain ingredients and after a while those cells start to multiply and divide and they are actually very robust in how they do that and after those divide over a series of um, months you call that an established line that's an embryonic stem cell line so it was about 70 of those lines in the early going they start with the single <clears throat> cell. each each one started with an embryo so that's, this was a watershed event, of course, because it really started uh, much of the current debate uh, around whether or not we should be doing this research. It started a very uh, profound and loud uh, debate in ethics about the moral status of the embryo at this stage, at two days. Is it human? Is it not? Should we use it? Should we protect it? Basically, those two sorts of questions. And what it did also was give impetus to a couple of efforts, both that met with surprising success. And one of those efforts was a state's rights effort to actually fund the research independently of the federal government. So California really led the way in 2004 with the passage of Proposition 71. Um, Prop 71 passed as these things go by a very wide margin, 59%, for those of you that remember. And Proposition 71, constitutionally, in terms of California law, uh, established something called the CIRM, or the California Institute for Regenerative Medicine. It is the administrative body charged with distributing $3 billion to embryonic stem cell research uh, let me just correct that. Let's say stem cell research in California. In fact, in the charter, it says CIRM will fund research not otherwise funded by the federal government. So you can kind of take that the way you want. But to, to the, uh, to, for all intents and purposes, this money is going primarily to embryonic stem cell research. That was in 2004. Do I see a hand up? Nope. Okay. So this happened in 2004, and it wasn't more than a few months before CIRM got caught up in a bunch of lawsuits. These were two lawsuits. One was brought by a Right to Life organization, one by a taxpayer rights organization. They were both challenging the constitutionality of, uh, of the proposi proposition. And it took almost two years for this to work its way through the California courts and the California Supreme Court. And when it did, finally, in 2006, the money was unleashed, right? So I'll talk a little bit about CIRM in just a minute. 
Now, while this was going on in California, there were varying other state efforts that were also trying to pass measures like this was with, uh, with varying degrees of success. I'll, I'll discuss those in a moment. But the big news was in Washington. This was a big deal in Washington. Um, there was a series of protracted debates in the Senate and the House on measures that would overturn George Bush's August 9th policy. And much of this debate was fueled by the fact that California became so quick off the mark with funding research in a big way. Now, the National Institutes of Health budget every year is about $28 billion with a B dollars. That's a lot of money uh, for research. The, the, uh, the California initiative is about $300 million every year, $3 billion over 10 years. To give you an idea of how that fits into the National Institute of Health picture, the National Institutes of Health are a bunch of separate institutes, each funding research in, in certain areas like Parkinson's disease or uh, infectious diseases or spinal injury and that sort of thing. Well, one small institute at the National Institute's annual budget is about $350 million a year. So what the California Initiative basically does is establish kind of a mini NIH, an, an institute within, that is in charge of regenerative medicine, as the, the name of CIRM says. And the idea is to fund research that the National Institutes of Health can't because they are under uh, law, both by the Dickey Amendment and by the Bush pronouncement, not to fund embryo research or embryonic stem cell research. So the, the Congress voted on this to overturn Bush's uh, policy. They also voted on some criminal measures that I'll talk about in a minute. And Bush exercised his very first veto in 2006 and then vetoed it again a year, about a year later in the summer of 2007. And then bringing you to most recently, New Jersey uh, in November, I believe it was, uh, introduced a half billion dollar measure for stem cell research of all types. And uh, in this case, the measure went down fairly resoundingly. And uh, though I wasn't privy to the inside um, uh, kind of um, politics of this, what I hear from people that I know in New Jersey was the reason this failed uh, was uh, that the opponents to the stem cell research bill portrayed the bill as a a basically a subsidy for the large pharmaceutical industry. And so, as you know, in New Jersey, big pharma is a big presence. And so they portrayed the pharmaceutical industry as kind of the evil empire, that they were going to get all the benefits from stem cell research, and it went down uh, pretty convincingly. Any questions about the timeline? All right, so, yes, ma'am. Yeah, so the question, yeah, so the question uh, was, what happened when Shalala lifted the ban? Well, the NIH actually list, uh, 
uh, started what they call an RFA or a request for application and said, okay, we've got the green light, so all of you out there in um, academic land can write proposals and we'll consider them and then we'll fund them. And what happened was that not very many proposals came in because there was so much discussion going on in, in Congress. And I believe that a couple did actually make it over the transom and the NIH was, was reviewing these when the letter writing campaign came in and so they never got off the mark. Yes, so the question is Prop 71 um, insulated from state budget and the answer to that is yes. It's a bond measure, which means they issue bonds, uh, we pay for them or investors pay for them and then that goes into the treasury and that flows directly into CIRM. So what do we have here for federal policy on embryonic stem cell research. Here's what was outlined in President Bush's speech at Crawford, Texas. I already mentioned the timing. These lines that could be eligible for funding had to be isolated from in vitro fertilization embryos made and no longer needed. In other words, not embryos made expressly for research but rather embryos uh, made for reproductive purposes and no longer needed by the parents or by the woman, that there must be informed consent that's granted by the donors. In other words, the donors who are giving the embryos to research must have said, I want this embryo to go to research. That there were no financial incentives or inducements to the donors. In other words, there was no payment to donate or give your embryo to research, supply your embryo to research. And you'll notice that how the heck did this get from 78 to 20? Remember I said 78 lines? Well, it turns out that once the scientists and others took a really close look at the presidential registry, it turned out that many of the lines on the registry were worthless they were um, contaminated or simply did not grow. Some lines simply did not exist. Other lines were so encumbered with intellectual property and patents that they could not be accessed by researchers. And so the, the general rule of thumb now among embryonic stem cell researchers in the United States are that there are less than 20 uh, available and actually my group at Stanford studies these 20 lines and where they go very carefully because they are a rare and precious resource for for uh, researchers so we actually track them on an international scale to see where they're going what labs which countries and among these 20 lines there are about five give or take that are used exclusively so remember that in order to do the right kind of research across a wide genetic diversity of diseases and people, we need a wide diversity and many numbers of lines. That is a principal argument for having 
hundreds or perhaps thousands of lines rather than five or dozens of lines. Yes? This is that you and folks here chapter 20 lines ago. Yes. But then five are used exclusively. What does that mean and what are the other 15 being used? So the question is, um, uh, what, the, of, the, of the 20, 20 lines that are used, why are five used uh, more than others? Maybe that's the better way to put it. Uh, the five that are used more than others are simply better characterized. They've been studied longer. And when you have a research tool like a line that you know how it's going to behave from one experiment to the other, it gives a certain comfort when planning experiments. And so having these then become kind of the, um, I don't know, like a model or a standard system. The others, by the way, are, are in fact used, but are some of them are just simply very finicky. Now these are the government lines. Remember there are lots of private lines available, not on the registry, and those we also track here at Stanford. Yeah. And are the five that are sort of robust, are they, um, <clears throat> are they on that mouse feeder? Yes, feeder? yes. So they couldn't necessarily go into humans anyway? Well, that's a good question. So the, the, the question is, are the, are the uh, presidential lines, as we call them, um, <laughs> on uh, mouse feeder layers? And the answer to that is mostly yes. And so those lines that have been grown on mouse feeder layers with uh, other animal products like bovine serum, that's actually BSA is a, or BS, I can't remember the other acronym, is, is something you put in these cells to help them grow, aren't, uh, do not make them conducive for putting into people because you know, you'd be putting in maybe mouse viruses or cow viruses, but they're perfectly fine for use in research labs. In fact, cell culture uses these day in, day out on many different kinds of human cell lines, not just embryonic cell lines. But the exception to this is that technology has proceeded to the point where some of these presidential lines have been weaned off the mouse embryonic feeders that I showed you last week on what's called feeder-free conditions, where all it is is just chemistry. And they've shown after a period of months and years that now these grow uh, free of the mouse feeders and then are free of um, the murine uh, contaminants. Yes? Yeah, that's a really good question. So the question is, how did, how did IVF research simply kind of fly under the radar for the controversy while embryonic research got caught up by the embryo controversy? Well, I think the answer to that question is, would you deny parents the chance to have a child? And there are many, many thousands of parents who have very happy families now because of this technology. And so this is, in my view, uh, a political choice that is made in this particular case uh, where IVF proceeds because it is perceived um, in some cases as a net good for uh, human health and for family making and, and the rest. Embryonic stem cells, on the other hand, remember that the embryo in this particular case is, is destroyed, not preserved, but what gets lost in the debate is that in the IVF case, many of those embryos that are frozen are discarded. Not only that, some women who get pregnant through it have maybe multiple 
Yes, right. So this is, this is the great paradox. And the great paradox of the debate is that on one hand, we, uh, as a society, seem to say, at least some segments of society say, okay, IVF is okay. Um, discarding embryos, not the best, but, you know, frozen embryos, but that's what we do. Um, selective uh, abortion at multiple pregnancies, or the other risks that simply go on with IVF, right? On one hand, that's okay. And on the other hand, embryonic stem cell research that would use these embryos that were to be discarded anyway is wrong and immoral because it's killing. So it's really quite an interesting and from a moral and ethical point of view, somewhat incoherent okay. argument. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. Um, I haven't heard that one yet, but that's one way of describing, describing the, uh, the argument. Now, um, there are, uh, to be fair, good arguments on the, on the IVF side too, and that's that every embryo that is made by this should be adopted, right? So there, in that case, you're not destroying or throwing away any embryo, you're simply trying to find a parent for every frozen embryo. And the only reason we can't do that is because we are not set up as a society to place these embryos like we're not set up, uh, excuse me, <clears throat> as a society to place our, our, uh, our adopted children. Now that's the snowflake baby argument and George Bush has publicly, of course, embraced that too. The, the reality of that though, and research shows this, is that most parents who are uh, asked to donate spare embryos to surrogates decline. And many parents who are considering adopting or, or birth that they can't have their own also decline taking embryos from others. So it's not so much a kind of a, a technical or perhaps a resource problem here in the United States. It's more of a choice problem on the, on the part of families on both sides of the equation. Yes. And, you know, so the child is, is alive, but has this terrible disease, will probably pass away in a few years. Now they have seven or eight of these embryos in storage, and there's a high probability that a certain percentage would have that genetic defect. And you can see the researcher's mind thinking about, hey, I'd like to have access to that line because um, this would be a great way to test therapy um, before trying to. Yes, right. So that's a very good point. And the, and the, the question, uh, if I can paraphrase your, your question in that, is that what are the fears of coercion for those parents and families that have frozen embryos to not keep them in the freezer, but rather give them to research? And so part of this gets at that. And that's that no financial inducements is one of those things that, you know, it has to be a clear informed consent. It's not to say that consent can't be um, 
uh, slanted or biased in some way, right? I mean, giving them, say, oh, you know, do you want to give this? It would really help research. But this actually, the reason I have this slide here is to show that, you know, in this address, Bush was getting at some of the kind of elemental ethical concern about this research in terms of the consent and donation of embryos and that dialogue between physicians, scientists, and the people who donate eggs, gametes, and the embryos themselves. So switching gears a little bit, here's a roundup of the, the big fights in the Congress over the last three sessions. Um, in the 109th Congress, there were three of actually 16 bills that I counted during this time on embryo research and embryonic stem cell research. So everybody was introducing their version of a bill that would either restrict it, criminalize it, or allow it. And these are the big ones. The, the one in blue is called the Stem Cell Research Enhancement Act of 2005. That was introduced in order to overturn or supplant the Bush uh, prohibitions. There was H.R. 1357, which was introduced by, by Senator Brownback and others. It was called the Human Cloning Prohibition Act of 2005. Now this act put embryonic stem cell research and nuclear transfer, remember that method of putting the nucleus from one cell into another? Together. They linked them together in this bill and said that both of them are illegal and that criminal penalties would be uh, issued against any scientist who undertakes research that would either create a human being by nuclear transfer, I'm quoting from the law now, or from the uh, language rather, um, uh, or destroy an embryo for research, and that those penalties would be up to 10 years in prison and up to $1 million. So if you do the research, you put yourself at risk for that. And then there were riders on this bill, 1357, that would criminalize patients that would get the therapies and their caregivers. And in one fantastic scenario, uh, I think this came up either during a debate or perhaps in, in a journal, that uh, you could imagine someone taking their sick parent or their child to say the UK or a place where this was allowed, having the therapy bringing them back and then having them put in jail once they reach American shores under the law here. So it was quite an amazing thing and it passed the House by wide margin and as I mentioned, did not pass the Senate. There was also a companion bill by Brownback called the Human Chimera Prohibition Act. This was never passed but introduced that would make it illegal to make these so-called animal-human hybrids. Do you remember those that kind of came up in the press? And that was really a function of this very early human embryonic stem cell research of putting human cells into animal uh, embryos to see uh, how, they would, uh, how they would act, how the cells would behave. And this particular uh, act just was so wild it never, it never uh, passed the uh, house. When I give these talks in England or other countries like Pacific Rim, 
they just look at this saying, what are you thinking? You know, and then other countries are saying, yeah, we understand this completely. Germany has a set of laws that are very much like this or introduced a set of laws. Anyway, so going through this, in July 18, 2006, this act that was introduced in the, in the House originally was passed by the Senate. So it passed both, but Bush vetoed it. That was his first veto in office. And then these were so-called conscience bills that passed with wide margins. It happened again in another cycle in the 110th Congress. This time it was H.R. 3. It was basically the same bill as H. Or 810, passed both House and Senate. They Remember, this was after the uh, midterm elections, so they picked up a few votes, but not enough for a veto. You needed a so-called super minority, or super majority, sorry, to override a veto. And they were uh, a few vo votes short in the Senate, maybe one or two, but lots of votes, 50, 60 votes shy in the House. So at right now, I just put this up here to to show how much this has been an important part of the Bush presidency, two vetoes, one Iraq funding, and one spending. Now here's some very interesting facts that sets the United States completely uh, aside and unique to other countries. And that is because of this debate that we have and the fact that we have legal gridlock in Washington. We have no law that would ban reproductive cloning, the cloning of a human being. As far as I know, every other Western country has, and most Eastern countries, have these on the books, have these laws on the book. Another interesting fact is that this presidential proclamation is, uh, carries the force of law but is not law. So this is not on the books. This is simply you know, on his website. Um, it is actually, and I, I get this a lot from people outside of the United States. They say, oh, well, you know, it must be terrible in the United States because you can't do embryonic stem cell research. Well, that's not true. We do embryonic stem cell research all the time here. Um, it's legal to do it in most states with the exception of uh, South Dakota and Michigan. In South Dakota, it's a first-class misdemeanor. You go to jail uh, if you do the research. In Michigan, it's uh, unlawful to destroy a Michigan embryo or embryonic stem cells, but you can bring in, they think, stem cells from other states. Um, remember that private funding of research is completely okay. And Bush said this in his address, and it's also in NIH policy. And then, of course, I've mentioned that the public research has been uh, restricted since the 70s. So I, I, I show you this. Remember, this is the, remember the famous blue state, red state, United States? So this is how the United States shook out on the Bush presidential election. Um, and I want to give you this state map as an interesting contrast to that on how an issue now, embryonic stem cell research, has split and transcended the political boundaries of red state, blue state. So this is the Senate vote 
I've superimposed here. All the red states are where both senators voted against the um, 810, the bill that would allow funding. The gray states are those states where the vote was split, and the green states are those that both say yes. The 2007 vote was nearly identical to this one. So I put this up just to show you how this issue really has kind of divided uh, the United States in very interesting ways in terms of the political process. And of course, as I mentioned uh, last week, and also cite some figures in the book, although the, the research is not very good on this, um, the polls say that most Americans across many demographies um, believe that embryonic stem cell research should go forward. It's anywhere from you know, a small minority, 55 to 60%, to large minorities, 75 to 80%. And that goes across many different types of um, people, including um, religious conservatives, evangelicals, and even Catholics, mainline Catholics. Right. Yeah, it really is. The Vatican has a very strong position against this, and they've published encyclicals and all the rest about how this is an immoral uh, uh, thing. And of course, it's consistent with their other positions on IVF and abortion and the rest. Um, but mainline Catholics uh, in the United States are, of course, very much out of step with that with that view. Four votes shy. I think it was two votes shy in the next one. So that's the Fed picture. Let's look at the states. Remember I said that in the states we can do it. Well, it's not quite that simple. Actually, there are a bunch of states that support and fund it. California, Massachusetts, New Jersey, Connecticut, and a few others. There are a bunch that support but don't fund. So they say it's okay, but we're not going to support it with any kind of dollars. In South Dakota, uh, actually that's wrong. It's not a felony, it's a misdemeanor. That's a misprint. In Michigan, I mentioned the, uh, the interesting case there. Virginia simply can't get the language straight. So people who read the Virginia law aren't quite sure whether the embryo is a human being or not. They can't define it such where researchers uh, know whether they are violating the law or not. There are some states that prohibit research on the basis of these laws based in the 70s, the IVF laws, uh, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Oklahoma, there are a bunch of others. But the majority of the United States say nothing. So they're silent on the issue. And there's a kind of a statement of law that says that which is not forbidden is allowed. Well, that I guess depends on whether or not your state's attorney general will define your law one way or another. As one lawyer I know says, uh, in fact, you read her article, Susan Stain's article, I'm not sure if I were a state's attorney general in a state that said nothing, whether I would recommend to my researchers to go ahead and do this. I would have to read the law very carefully and then say, you know what, the letter of the law says this, I would recommend that you not. Or maybe the letter of the law says that you can. But it makes it very difficult in some states um, where there's simply nothing on the books to know what to do.
Now, I don't know, have you guys been to this website? It's not surprising, it's brand new. It's our website called The Stem Cell. It's run out of Stanford. And it's www.thestemcellblog.com. And we post, we have hundreds and thousands of, of, uh, of interesting things, uh, words and interesting things here, uh, articles and the rest. But if you're interested in what states are doing and what the federal landscape is in terms of where laws are going, this is a great place to go. And in fact, we track these states on something called State Watch. And so these are states that we rank every three months on where they are in terms of their funding for embryonic stem cell research. Um, the green categories I've mentioned, we have these categories that fund but don't support, and then those states that are restrictive and those that criminalize it, and then states that I mentioned that have no clear position. And if you go here, you can kind of see, this is again with Susan Stain, we take a crack at actually analyzing the laws on the books to help you understand where states are coming down on the issue. And some of them aren't clear, some of them are fairly clear um, about it. And we update this every few months or so. It's uh, thestemcellblog.com. All right, the knock-on effects. Well, federal policy has created some very interesting situations in terms of law and collaboration. One is that the National Institutes of Health has very few uh, early developmental and embryonic stem cell experts. And some of them have actually left the agency to go to other countries or into other labs. Um, there was a very early worry that this would actually drive scientists to China and to Singapore and all the rest. I'll say that that's, that, that hasn't really happened. I think the diaspora that everybody predicted has not come to pass. Now, I was one of those that wrote very early on in 2002 that this was going to be a disaster for American research that, and, and I had a personal experience with this when I was at UCSF uh, working in the chancellor's office. Uh, our top embryonic stem cell research, Roger Pedersen, came down the hall on July, it was the first week of July 2001. Remember George Bush's speech was August 9th. And he said, I don't have a good feeling about this and I've got 20 people in my lab I'm worried about losing my funding. I don't want to be doing something that's illegal, so I'm leaving. And he came down to each of our offices and told us that. And I thought, this is the first case that I could remember where a scientist that I knew actually said, I'm going to go move, and I'm going to take my family and all of my cells and all my knowledge and as many people as I possibly can. And he went to Cambridge, Roger did. And it was the first penguin off the ice flow. And I thought that this was going to be a real problem. Well, what happened was the state efforts got wound up and it's just really tough to make those decisions. I mean, you've probably made some pretty tough career choices of your own. It's hard to say, well, you know, I'm gonna 
risk everything and take my family and my, my lab and everything else and try to find a job someplace else. Especially the senior investigators, those are very difficult thresholds to cross. And I think Roger did it and a certain number of others, but not many others did. There was a worry that we would become a follower rather than a leader here in the United States. I also think that uh, has not come to pass. Um, the majority of, of discoveries are still coming from the United States. Um, we are still way far ahead of other countries in this, but as I'll show you some data, that pace has started to slow. Economic development may have slowed, uh, slowed a little bit. A future worry would be whether or not U.S. patients might pay more for treatments developed in other countries because of this. In other words, we may find a treatment that may go around the world in Thomas Friedman's flattening global environment to finally get to the United States for a patient rather than being developed right here. Again, lots of research going on here. And then, of course, we have this crazy quilt of state regulation. So uh, I think I'll go through this, and then we'll take a short break and, uh, and then come back. Um, here's the Proposition 71. Uh, those of you that aren't familiar with Serum, it's a 50-employee granting unit. And right now, it's di uh, distributed, um, I think, about $200 million in embryonic stem cell research. 51 million of it came here to Stanford. It's, it's, uh, right, uh, it's a block away from where I live, in Mission Bay in, in uh, San Francisco, right on the bay, on the UCSF or near the UCSF campus. They've had a real, I mean, it's been a, a real tough time for Serum. They lost their, their president, my former boss, Zach Hall. They, um, they uh, put out a, uh, a recruitment for a new president. I was lucky to be on that list. And uh, lucky I didn't get the job, I think, because uh, it's a, uh, it's, they've got a lot of work to do. And they're kind of behind the curve right now because they've had a, uh, a tough, tough time getting started. But you know, these startup sort of things take, take a long time to get going. OK, so why don't we take a break and, and uh, cool down a little bit. Okay, I realized my eyes were bigger than my stomach on this lecture, so I'm going to cut out some slides and go right to the fun part. And uh, uh, what, uh, what I'm not going to talk about uh, today, but we'll probably pick up in the next couple of weeks, is a little bit more on the patents issue and the intellectual property and how to commercialize discoveries made in laboratories like here at Stanford and at UCSF. It happens to be my kind of area of scholarly expertise, so I'm leaving it behind with a little bit of, um, uh, sad that I'm leaving it behind a little bit, but I'll get to it for sure. What I wanted to do instead is to go right to a question that was uh, asked at the beginning, and that's was, you know, how are we going to look after this research? Since it's controversial, who is in charge of making sure that we do it the right way? Um, and so what I wanted to do today is describe the California case, how we do oversight of embryonic stem cell research in California and specifically at Stanford. 
What is the wrong way? Well, so the question is, is there a right way and a wrong way? So the, the, I'll get to some of those things that are concerns and those things that, let's say, we could uh, allow. So in California, we have to follow three sets of guidelines and laws, actually two sets of guidelines and one set of laws. One was issued by the National Academy of Sciences in 2005, the second shortly after by the California Institute for Regenerative Medicine, and then lastly by California law. These are very much overlapping. They have um, a lot of things in common. They have some things uh, not in common, but basically these are these are chapter verse sort of things that that we in institutions that conduct embryonic stem cell research must pay attention to before we let this controversial research go forward. So what do we do? Well, it's called a scrow. It's really a bad name. And it used to be called an escrow for embryonic stem cell research oversight committee. And some of the questions that we ask about what's allowable, let's say, and what isn't are the following. One question that we'd ask is, where do the embryonic stem cells come from? Were they ethically derived? Now, what do we mean by that? Well, we mean, were the in proper informed consents given to the donors of the cells? Was there no coercion? Were there no uh, payments uh, made? Was the research um, uh, the researcher separate from the decision to donate? In other words, there was no direct kind of uh, twisting of arms to donate the eggs or embryos for research, that sort of thing. So that's what we mean by ethically derived. And a lot of this finds its context in the South Korean fraud where this kind of went on without any ethical oversight. If you remember, the South Koreans, not only did they fabricate their data for nuclear transfer, they obtained their eggs in an unethical manner, some of them, some of the eggs. In other words, they paid for the eggs, uh, uh, and the women who supplied the eggs were working in the laboratory where the research was going on. Clear conflict of interest. Now, depending on where you are in the world, this may be seen as permissible or not, but by most global guidelines, the South Korean fraud and how they obtained the eggs was not ethically permissible. Questions we ask researchers are, so you want to make some new lines. We want to see your project. And the reason we want to see your project is because we want to make sure that you know how to do it, that you're asking the right scientific questions, or that you're, let's say, asking a germane scientific question, that you're not just kind of tossing something out there and using lines for any old purpose, but rather an important, say, scientific question or perhaps medical question, and that you're not um, using a fairly important <coughs> and scarce resource in a cavalier fashion. So embryos are hard to come by. We've already established that. Secondly, the embryonic stem cell lines themselves need attention. And so scientists need to be properly trained. And because California has had all of this money coming towards it, we find ourselves in the interesting position of having more money 
then we have trained investigators and scientists to work on. So one of the reasons we have this committee is to set up to make sure that we, as a Stanford group and as scientists, are doing this in the most responsible way. Question here, then there. <clears throat> yeah, so the question is, does the, it, does the research have to be done in California? Yes, if it's California Institute for Regenerative Medicine funding, it does need to be done in California facilities. However, we can collaborate with researchers outside of California, and so there have been some pretty innovative <laughs> ways of getting California money that we've paid for, by the way, through a bond measure, out of the state to support um, you know, researchers outside. But you know, that's looked at fairly closely, and I would say that's more of an exception than a rule. Question back? No, you're right. So you've, you've raised a very important question. The question for the rest that didn't hear it was the, the, the dichotomy between um, payment for eggs and the Chinese wall that we've set up uh, between research th uh, that needs eggs that are, that are donated, that are free of encumbrances. And I'll also add another point onto your, your statement, and that's that IVF eggs for healthy 20-year-old Scandinavian Stanford students advertised in Stanford Daily, which they're probably around here, are between forty dollars and $70,000. Um, so we have on one side a market economy for eggs for women who can go through this risky procedure, by the way, it's an invasive procedure, it involves weeks of hormone treatments, not without risk, um, and be compensated for it. And then there are the other uh, interesting questions about women's autonomy on this, that shouldn't women decide whether they are to offer their eggs free to research or embryos, or to be simply um, reimbursed for them in some way. There's a lot of literature about this, and if you're really interested in some good arguments on both sides, I'll send them to you. One of them, if you're uh, on, on the web, is to uh, look up a uh, Harvard professor. Her name is Deborah Spar, S-P-A-R, and she is the dean of public policy at Harvard, I believe, and she wrote a very interesting article in the New England Journal of Medicine about this, and she's very much on the, on the side of we should uniformly allow women to be paid for these eggs. And it would solve, if that happened, the resource problem on the, re on the research side. But then there are the worries that have been raised. Sorry? That's right. So disadvantaged women, for example, uh, might take advantage of this sorts of sort of uh, regulatory scheme to um, just simply have the procedure at some risk to make money to you know bring themselves out of poverty. For example, that doesn't seem wrong to me if, it, if the person wants to do it. It's just like smoking cigarettes. If the person wants to get pregnant, have it. It's a choice. Yes, it's a, the choice is one. The choice is one side of the argument. There, and then there's the societal paternalistic part of this, too. Yes? Uh, is there a shortage of stem cells? Yes. So the question is, is there a shortage of stem cells? The, the actual best way to put it is there is a shortage of embryos and eggs for this 
very important uh, first few days of life kind of research, you know, the developmental biology we've been talking I mean, about. Having money as California has doesn't mean that you can import or purchase or, uh, or, or do things to increase your supply. Right. So the, the question was, having the money, does it help us get more eggs from other states? Well, that depends on the state and the country. But in, 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 in Stanford's case, for example, we have dozens of eggs and embryos that are available every week. And it's simply, we haven't been able to use them because we haven't set up this ethical and oversight structure so that we're making sure that every T is crossed and all the, all the other things are taken care of too. And, by the way, that we're hewing to the law which in the state of California says that women shall not, this is the law now, shall not be paid for the eggs that are donated or uh, embryos donated to research, right? So that's law. We can't, there's no way around it in California unless the law is changed. So when you say you can't be paid for your egg, can you be paid for the medical procedure that results in the egg being... That's a good question. So... The, the, the question is, well, you can't get paid for the egg, but could you get a discount, let's say? <laughs> or just the cost. The answer to that is no, by the, by the evaluation of the law. However, in the UK, that's exactly what they've done. So in the UK, they have the same sort of um, situation, and they say, well, it's called an egg-sharing plan. So in the UK, you get I think a thousand dollars or 500 pounds off your um, your IVF treatment if you donate some of those eggs for research. So, and that's controversial uh, here, and not so controversial in the UK. But they've they've started it, and we'll see we'll see if that does the trick there. Yes, ma'am. That's right. So that's the, again, we're going back to the kind of the... the, the you can get a rum, you can get a Coke, but you can't get a rum. That's going back to the IVF thing for, so if you're going to donate, a, if you're going to sell your egg to an IVF clinic, you may do that. If you're going to sell your egg to research, you may not do that in California and in other states. Okay, so let's, let's move on, because this is really interesting stuff. I can tell you guys are thinking about it. Here's some other things. We have to review research that put human embryonic stem cells into non-human animals at any stage of embryonic fetal or postnatal development. So that means if I put an embryonic stem cell into a, um, into a, sh a sheep while it's in the uterus of a you know, a sheep fetus while it's in the uterus. If I want to do that, I've got to have that approved by this committee. Now, why? Can you think of reasons why? Putting a human cell into a... You might get the chimera, remember? And that was part of Sam Brownback's law and a lot of concern about whether these animals would in fact, somehow develop and have human traits. Now, it's not just the conservatives that are worried about this. Ethicists are worried about this, too, and rightly so. Um, you could imagine 
pushing this back very early in development and actually putting embryonic stem cells into an embryo of, human embryonic stem cells rather, into an embryo of, let's say, a primate, right? And then implanting that into, let's say, a pregnant primate. And you can imagine what kind of result that we would have. Those are troubling because to some, not to all, but to some, because they blur the, uh, the notions of what it means to be human and our definition of our species versus other animals. So I'm going to give you a case study. I'm going to ask you to deliberate on that particular question in a couple of minutes. Yeah. Yes, does everybody know what an IRB is? Institutional Review Board. That is a board that is set up to review uh, uh, research on human subjects. So, so research for clinical trials, putting brand new drugs and devices and that sort of thing into humans for the first time or other, other phases of, of research. That is separate from this. So this is very much like an Institutional Review Board, but this is only for stem cell research. I serve on this committee. So it's here at Stanford? Yes. I, you know, those that do clinical research have gotten um, notices this week that you can attend uh, training on embryonic stem cell research in the IRB process. So I'm just wondering who is actually administering it. The IRB here is overloaded. You wouldn't be able to handle No, no. The, the IRB, the IRB, in fact, the way that this is set up, without getting into the details, because I want to finish up here, um, the, the IRB and the Embryonic Stem Cell Research Oversight Committee actually work together quite closely. And remember, we don't have embryonic stem cells in the clinic yet, except in one case that I know of in California. So there's not a lot for the IRB to do on this issue yet, but there will be more later. And in fact, now this committee is starting to look at stem cell trials that used to be in the cancer category. So bone marrow transplants and that sort of thing. Not because we think we need to, but because state law says we have to. It's another one of those things that we have kind of scope creep with the law. So the last bit is um, we have to research, uh, review research in which there's personal identifiable information about the cell uh, or embryo donors is is, is uh, ascertainable by the research. It's a long, kind of complicated way of saying we have to guarantee the privacy of those individuals who give these. And there's some very interesting sorts of twists to this, which I'll go through the last lecture, that's completely unique to stem cell research about confidentiality and privacy, genetic privacy especially, yes. So the, the question is, would it need to go through an IRB and a SCRO if it was in a clinical trial? And the answer to that is yes. Okay? As far as access to cells, you know how people have living wills? Yes. If somebody dies in a car accident, can their egg be harvested? Ooh, that's a good question. So the question, question was... Uh, yes, so can someone donate their eggs to research if they're dying? Yes, that is uh, possible. Um, you know, there's this 
this this uh, problem of egg attrition over li over lifetime. So the, the the donor has to be a certain age for it to be actually useful. But absolutely right. In fact, there are some um, uh, some movements uh, afoot to actually make this very specific on organ donor uh, cards, so that the many thousands of eggs, or actually the primary cells that make the eggs, the oocytes, can be can be used and then matured in the laboratory somehow. But that's a very early science. Yes, same thing. Same thing with sperm. Okay. So this is the last slide before we end uh, the, the verbal part of the lecture, and then we'll do a little case study for the last 20 minutes. Um, who's on a scrow? Well, there are, there are citizens on a scrow. And in fact, on our scrow, there's a former student, two former students of this class who applied and were nominated and interviewed, and now they sit and deliberate with all of the scientists, ethicists, lawyers, transplant experts, embryologists, disease advocates, and the rest. This is, you know, I've been on university committees most of my career, and they're deadly boring, I'll tell you, most of them. This one is not. <laughs> this one is, a, we've got a bunch of firebrands on this because it's a really interesting area of science. It's moving faster than we can deliberate a lot of the times. And so these meetings, two hours, three hours, sometimes into the late evenings are fascinating because we meet, uh, we meet once a month, but we meet virtually more than that. So I get stuff I've got to review on the, on the, in my computer all the time. And the, really the things that we review are simply up to the imagination of the scientists. And some of the scientists are just I mean, I don't know where they get this stuff. That's probably why they're so good at it. But it's one of the reasons that keeps us extremely busy is actually looking at what they're giving, giving us to review. So that's who's on a scroll. Um, and these people rotate off after a while. It gets to be quite a lot of work. So I'm going to leave it here. We'll uh, stop the recording, and then we'll do a case study, and then uh, we'll take